Hey, before we get into today's show, I wanted to let you know that Matt Brown is the lucky winner of the Pat Rawson giveaway that we did last month. Um, so congrats to Matt Brown. He's been contacted, and that'll be coming together soon. I'll try to post photos as Pat's working on that board. And we'll be doing another board giveaway next month as well, so look forward to that. <laughs> From Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing about today's guest, Bert Berger, quote, Industrious surfboard shaper from Western Australia, best known as the co-founder of Firewire Surfboards with fellow Aussie Nev Hyman, Berger was born 1968 in Perth, pushed into waves by various uncles as a toddler, and started riding on his own at age four. At seven, the precocious burger began fooling around with shaping by cutting channels into the bottom of a styrofoam cool light board. At 13, he was building tri-fins by stripping off glass from an old throwaway single fins. Two years later, Burger lied about his age and got an apprentice shaping job at Town & Country Surfboards in the Western Australia factory. In the early 2000s, Nev Hyman approached Burt Burger who had gained a small but dedicated following for his custom epoxy wood veneer boards about going into business. In 2006, the duo launched Firewire, an alternative material surfboard line that quickly gained a following. Burger star rose, and in 2007, Surfer Magazine named him their Shaper of the Year. Burger's work at both Firewire and his own label, Sonova, centered on epoxy-glued layers of foam with thin wood veneer deck panels and balsa strips along the rails that eliminated the center stringer, end quote, from Matt Warshaw. So we do go pretty deep into construction talk for the first portion of today's show. Bert then goes into detail about his role in co-founding Firewire and what their practical and ideological differences were that led to him leaving the company. He also explains what it's like manufacturing surfboards in Thailand and addresses some of the misconceptions about the Thai surfboard industry. Lots of information here that I think provides some helpful context and also just some humanity to the conversations that have been taking place online about board building worldwide. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Bert Berger of Sonova Surfboards. I'll be back at the end of the show to sign us off. What did you see as the limitation for PU construction when you first kind of had your epiphany with EPS and epoxy? Well, the limitations for PU, I think, is um, shape. Like, well, okay, if you look at an layer, right, it's a piece of wood. Mm -hmm. And it's a thin piece of wood, but you can go out and perform on it. But you couldn't make a PU in those same dimensions, So essentially it's like regardless of what materials you're working with, they're all going to have a limitation. So there's going to be a – there's going to be the optimum shape 
in every choice of materials. Okay. And so once you change materials, you're really going to change that optimum shape. So when you discovered EPS and epoxy, what was the shape that you were riding? Was it high-performance shortboards at the time? Or? Oh, for sure, yeah. Okay. High-performance shortboards. And I found the main thing, and, and look, this is kind of almost old old knowledge now. I think most, most guys have figured this out, that um, you get a little more buoyancy with EPS, but the main thing you get is, so you get more static float, but it also pops to the surface quicker when you sink it. So let's say you had a ball made of wood and you had a ping pong ball and you pulled them both underwater. The wooden ball would kind of just sort of slowly rise to the surface, like it would, it would rise at a certain speed, but the ping pong ball being more buoyant, it would want to rise to the surface faster and almost pop out of the water. Right. So basically that's what EPS does. Once you bury your rail into the water, it kind of wants to pop out and float faster than you're ready. You know, like it's like you want to bury it. The ideal scenario is you want to bury your rail into a turn and have it stay buried until you're ready to come out of the turn. Whereas a lot of times with the early EPS boards, when they were just modelled based on a traditional PU shape, you bury the rail and it feels like it wants to cork out or pop out on you before you're ready to actually exit the turn. And so the, the first thing I noticed basically was that to make EPS sort of respond uh, in a similar way to PU, the rails just had to be finer, a little, okay. little less volume in the rail so that it's not trying to cork out on you or pop out on you okay. during the turn. Do you remember having an, an epiphany experience on an EPS constructed board? Oh, yeah, look, I think there was little ones all the time. Um, you know, I found that the rocker, you know, like um, – the, the way the board flexed and and looking it's I, I think you're probably even generalizing a little bit too much just with EPS and PU like I was at a contest uh, last week over at the uh, uh, the WLT the uh, World Longboard Tour stop in New York and oh, yeah, yeah. same again when I was in China a few years ago for the world titles um, there was probably you had PU which is one technology. But then you had like EPS shape and glass, uh, which is just an EPS core glassed in epoxy, so on. Then you had EPS shape and glass with a stringer. Then you had like sandwich construction. So you had like a Sunover, which was EPS core with a sandwich skin of balsa. You had Thunderbolt, which was an EPS core with a sandwich of PVC. You had Firewire, which was an EPS core with a sandwich of Polonia. Then you had something like uh, Ben Skinner was riding slightly higher density EPS core with just a deck skin of high density PU. Okay. Um, and so at the contest, there was literally about 10 different variations, or you could almost say 10 different technologies of EPS. And what I see a lot today uh, is I'm watching a contest and the announcer or the interviewer is talking to the guy and so he says, oh, what are you writing? He says, oh, I'm writing EPS, but, but EPS is so much broader. Mm -hmm. um, What's even worse than that is they'll say I'm writing epoxy yeah. when they're actually referring to EPS often. Yes, correct. So, yeah, there's yeah. lots of misinformation. Yeah, so um, look, the, depending on how you're building the board, um, 
and exactly how it's constructed, those little uh, epiphanies uh, would come uh, just as you sort of change things. You sure. know, it's like you, you learn as you go. Um, look, for us, the main thing was, <clears throat> excuse me, was uh, building boards with flatter tail rockers that had a lot of drive and a lot of projection, a lot of down-the-line speed. But then when you loaded it into the bowl or jammed off the bottom really hard, that tail would literally bend and the rocker would be created from the load you put into your turn. So what that meant is when you are on the flats, you had a board that could fly down the line and when you stomped your back foot, it would fit in to the bowl of the wave and then project you back out again. So it was, it was mainly about learning how to uh, shape a board that best harmonised with the materials you're working with. Yeah. And every time somebody out there comes up with a new variation, they're going to have to go down that path right. of learning what works best in that construction process and that, those list of materials they're working with. What allowed uh, that flex tail? Like what design feature or construction feature allows it to flex that way? Well, it was basically removing the centre stringer. Okay. Okay. So when, uh, when you have anything that bends, like if you grab a phone book, a phone book's a classic example. When you bend a phone book, you'll notice that all the pages will slide past one another to accommodate the new curve. So for something to bend, there's a lot of shear movement. So when you have a stringer, and especially if you're doing a sandwich board and it has a stringer, um, because the foam core uh, in sandwich boards is generally really light, like it's sort of one pound or less, maybe 0 0.8, 0 0.7 of a pound. So the core is basically like marshmallow. So the skin is like free to move around the outside so as a board flexes, it experiences shear movement where the deck and bottom actually slide past one another. So once you put a stringer in a board, you're actually connecting the deck to the bottom. Okay. You're stopping that shear movement, which means you're stopping the flex, and without flex, you don't have spring back. Okay. So to get the flex in the tail, though, it, you just eliminate the center stringer. You really, Do you add... Yeah. Stringers anywhere yeah, else? Yeah, well, the, the stringers in the rail. You know, you can see with this cross section yep. I've got sitting on the desk here. You you still need something that in a in a PU, uh, what the stringer does is actually help the board retain its natural shape or spring back to its natural shape quicker. Different materials will bend and then spring back at different speeds. So, you know, if you look at something like modelling clay it'll bend, but it doesn't spring back at all. It just sure. stays in the new shape you put it in. Um, and then, so, so if you can imagine, like you have a wooden ruler and you have a plastic ruler and you basically bend them over the corner of a desk like you're in school and you're going to catapult something into the air. So the plastic ruler, it's going to spring back. You, you've put X amount of force into bending it down and when it springs back, it springs back slower with a soft, slow, sort of floppy reverberation. You do the same thing with wood and it springs back with way more kick. So some materials, when you bend them, if you hold them in the bent position for a certain amount of time, internally they sort of deform somewhat. So if you've used, say, you know, one kilo of force 
to to bend it, if you hold it there for too long, it may only spring back with 900 grams of force. Whereas, say you have a wooden ruler, you can hold it in the bent position, and if you've used one kilo of force to pull it down, you're going to get one one kilo of spring back. So, so wood springs back at a really nice speed, and it springs back. So everything you put in, you get back. So when you ride a normal uh, PU board that doesn't have a stringer, it kind of has this warbly, soft flex and it bends and it doesn't spring back quick enough. And it gives it this ride where you just can't get your timing right because it just doesn't respond under your feet. So by putting a stringer in a PU black, like I once asked an old board builder, Len Dibbon in Western Australia, I said, hey, Lenny, did you start putting stringers in boards to make them stronger? And he turned around and he said, no, fuck no, they just didn't go. And so adding the stringer was actually uh, a performance feature, not a strength feature. But the weight of the stringer meant they actually had to use a little less glass. And he was actually saying that the old boards that were stringerless were actually stronger Mm. because they had more glass and they would flex further and therefore absorb the impact of a wave on it. But the stringer enabled the board to kind of spring back to its original position. Right. So that's essentially the role of a stringer in a PU board is to make it, as it flexes, it springs back to its original shape with a little bit more liveliness. So in our boards, we still have stringers because we still need something to make it spring back into, into position. But instead of being in the middle, which, elim- which basically stops the top and bottom from sliding past each other, um, they are in the rails. And so that means the, the board can still flex because instead of the stringer being this tall and connected to the top and bottom, the, the string is actually quite low, but it's obviously, you know, instead of being an eighth of an inch thick, we've got half an inch in each rail. And so that enables the board to still flex like a normal board would, but obviously the wood in the rails is giving you the spring back, but the spring back is coming from the rail line and not from the centre of the board. So I'll, I'll just blow that one out a little further. Please, yeah, yeah. please. First of all, what, <laughs> what type of wood is it? Uh, it's balsa wood that we balsa. use. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. So, so what we have in the rail is basically four, four times one-eighth glue lamp together and run right around the outline of the gotcha. board. Yeah. Um, that's a different tech again behind me there. Um, so what happens with a PU board is that you have a stringer which is stiffer and when you load it into a turn, the rail line can flex independently of the stringer line. And I was actually just talking to Herbie Fletcher yesterday and this same conversation came up and he said, yeah, that's exactly what happens. They twist off and that's basically what does happen. As you go into a bottom turn, that inside rail that's engaged with the water, it will flex off. So if you're running uh, a flat bottom PU board, stringer in the middle, as you load into the bottom turn, that inside rail will literally twist off and create two things it'll create like a roll and a v Mm -hmm. in the bottom and it'll create more rocker on that inside rail that's engaged um and that's one of the biggest reasons that concaves work so well because like a rolled bottom or a v bottom is a lot slower than a flat bottom and the biggest reason that concaves work so well in pu is because as you load it into the turn 
that inside rail, as it flexes off, is now becoming a more favourable, faster flat bottom. So even though, you know, so many guys use the concave in lightweight PU – uh, and they do it because they think it's the shape that's working well, they're actually working with flex inadvertently. Mm. So the as the board flexes in general, nose to tail, the stringer is the important part. It's the part that allows the board to spring back into position. But as you're driving through a bottom turn, it's actually your rail that you're relying on to spring back um, and spring you out of the turn. And as that example I gave before with the wooden ruler and the plastic ruler, the wood kicks back with so much more force. The plastic, it has a soft, floppy kind of spring back. So you're relying just on a foam and fiberglass rail to spring you out of a turn. So what we've done is by putting the wood in the rails, you actually now have the wood right in the rail line, engaged deep in the water, and you're actually able to spring off that. So you feel way more of a slingshot effect or a catapult effect out of your turns because the spring back is coming from the rail line and that's actually below the water line engaged so you've got something to push off. Gotcha. Yeah. And by virtue of the outline of the board, the out exterior stringers are parabolic in shape. Yeah. They're not parallel. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so look, I, I don't know. Look, the, the parabolic rail, like, it was actually Greg Law that came up with that name. Um I just used to call them rail stringers gotcha. or uh, wooden rails. Yeah. But the parabolic rail kind of sounds cool. Sure. But I think if you were actually to sort of look up the meaning of the a parabola, uh, it's probably not that relevant. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, using the ruler, the ruler um, analogy, yes, the wood returns to static faster, as you're saying, but isn't that tr- only – really true on the first time like wood does fracture and way become less resilient way way less than other materials oh really yeah honestly wood wood has its ability to retain its original properties like if you look at a tree i mean they just they get blown around in the wind and you know they could be there for hundreds of years true but they originally they'll, they'll they'll eventually spring back to their original position wood maintains its memory way better like not all other materials foam resins plastics they will you know like if you get a coat hanger and you want to break it you can just bend it bend it bend it bend it and it'll break at that point um and with wood it it retains its its um it retains its memory way better than all other composite materials um i would think that you could invent or design a composite stringer that wasn't PVC or just some general use plastic that would be superior to wood. Is that untrue? Yeah. Look, I struggle with that. If you go deep, deep down and you look at like the, the structure of cellulose um, and at its atomic level, it's basically a carbon spring like it it has uh it's like a hexagonal type shape uh and then every time it it bends like 60 degrees yep. it bends 60 degrees on that plane so it's just like interesting this, it's like this carbon spring this carbon spiral and it's just thousands of those linked up and, and I, I honestly couldn't think of a 
better shape than a spring made out of carbon at, well, at, at a molecular level. That's natural. Made out of carbon. Yeah. Um, the, I'm not trying to replace wood for the sake of it. I'm just thinking that one thing that we always want or shapers, board builders always want is consistency and predictability in uh, their you, raw material. You have, you, and so yeah. every single wood stringer is different than the other. That honestly, that, that is so correct. Uh, I had a shaper tell me not long ago, he won't use wood because it's the one material he can't control. And when using a wooden stringer, he finds the boards are inconsistent in performance. Right. Um, and that's the reason why in the past, you know, a pro surfer gets 50 new boards and they're all identical and five are magic, 15 are acceptable and 30 are duds. Mm -hmm. When every other material is completely consistent, the resin's the same, the foam's the same density, maybe give or take 100 grams for the laminator or the sander. Um, and so in that sense, it is inconsistent and I will 100% agree with that. But when you get the right wood and you get lucky, like the lottery, so to speak, uh, it's magic. You can't beat it. There's nothing better. So – um, how involved are you in the selection process for your balsa? And what's your relationship? Do you have a supplier relationship that you heavily rely on? Yeah, look, Do you go look at trees and select your favorite trees? Well, <laughs> it got down to the point where um, we, we've had to work through a number of suppliers over the years. We've got a really good one now. I had a guy years back and he was amazing. Uh, he had his own plantation in New Guinea. He knew exactly what I was looking for. And he would actually source the wood for me at, at log level. And he'd check the density, check the weight, and he'd go, yep, I know that fits into Bert's like, yep. uh, selection requirements. And then he would send that back stuff, container that stuff back to Australia and machine it up for me. So it was super consistent. But even then when I got the boxes of wood and I was pulling each piece of balsa out of the box, I would go through them and I would literally weigh each piece and then when I found the stuff that was the right weight, then I'd also give a little bit of a flex test, uh, just like that wooden ruler, just to kind of get a feel for it. And I'd put it aside and I'd save that stuff just for my personal boards and for my team boards. Yep. Uh, and even where in a board you put the wood, you know, like if you, you can put the lighter stuff in the nose, so okay. you're reducing swing weight, you put the springier stuff in the tail, so you're getting a lot of zing and twang out of your turns. So we have a girl now in our factory and it's her full-time job to literally weigh every single – like literally unbox, weigh every single piece of wood and then we have six different density categories okay. that we put the wood in and we put – of course, we put the lighter stuff aside for team boards. We put the second two lightest grades for – um, standard surfboards, the heavier stuff we tend to throw into our SUP because they're quite light anyway. Um, yeah, and then we also mix and match it, you know, like we throw slightly heavier stuff you know, under the foot area as opposed to lighter stuff right across the bottom of the board. So I come from a wine background and they, um, I mean, the top end producers are selecting lots in the forest of oak trees for their kids' kids to then use a hundred years from now. And it's not only like a certain part of the forest that they want, it's 
those trees in that area and then the interior oak as opposed to the exterior of the oak for the staves in the barrels that they're going to use to make their wine a hundred years from now. Yeah. Like they're plotting it out that far in advance. Well, I, I know. Because the pedigree of the trees matter. Definitely with balsa. Look, I've, I've been in this long enough now to have had balsa from all over the world. Um, New Guinea, Indonesia, Ecuador, and without a doubt, the, the best balsa for what we want to use um, comes from New Guinea, but it comes from a real specific location in New Guinea. Uh, it's an island called Rabal. It's like a volcanic island on the, the eastern side of New Guinea. And, you know, it's like volcanic soil, certain elevation. If balsa gets rain all year round, 365 days a year, it grows really consistently. Uh, or there's a, there's a consistency right through the, the grain. Uh, the stuff that came from Ecuador kind of used to annoy me. I found it was quite inconsistent. You'd have one piece of wood and it would be hard and soft and hard and soft. Mm. And I eventually found out that Ecuador has like a more of a dry season and a wet season. And so it would literally be hard and soft, you know, as the like with the tree rings, so to speak. Um, so that sort of made it a little more difficult to work with. And the stuff from Indonesia, yeah, you can just forget it. Like they, no one in Indonesia has a, has an act as far as plantation. And so I was working with a supplier there for a while and then when we went to visit him and we saw how his operation worked and how he was literally just going out into the rainforest and cutting down virgin balsa trees, we are like, okay, see you later. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I really appreciate about you that I don't necessarily see in a lot of other shapers is – you have a blend of both like a kind of an artistic craftsman, but also an engineer mindset. And so you're actually collecting a lot of data, data points I can see. Yeah. And even to have, an, uh, to be able to speak with authority on which materials, you know, um, perform a certain way and when they give out and all that sort of stuff and be studying it, I think is really interesting. I would like to talk about, some of those processes and failures along the way, because failure is always an interesting topic. And I know you're constantly experimenting. <laughs> Let's go all the way back to um, kind of your early exploration with the sandwich sandwich construction. And I would also like to get into the creation of Firewire and where there were successes there and where there were missteps there. Yeah, for sure. All right. So the, the first foray into sandwich was – Around about 89, um, just the previous year, I'd gone out and started my own business and my whole focus of starting my own business was to explore new materials and new production processes That because my previous employer and where I was working um, basically just wanted me to do my job, knuckle down, stop asking dumb questions and didn't have the time or the energy to want to do any experimentation. But I think maybe, look, some people are just inquisitive and you can't hold yeah. them down. And so, you know, out of that I thought, right, well, if I'm my own boss, then I can make my own decisions and I can just start exploring this world of materials and see if I can, see if I can figure out how to build a better board. Um, so it started out with PVC. At, like, look, at the time in Western Australia there was a quite a strong – uh, sailboard industry um, and Western Australia has a lot of wind. I once heard somebody say that, you know, if you don't, if you live in Western Australia and you don't sail, it's like living in the Swiss Alps and not snow skiing. 
I mean, we it just the wind blows every day in the summer. Um, so I met a guy who built these sailboards and they were crazy light. And it was just EPS core, fiberglass, epoxy resin, a sandwich of PVC with some carbon fibre vacuum bagged around the outside. Man, really light, like a, a 200 litre board that was like eight kilo, uh, which is what in, I don't know, what, 18 pound, 18 and a half pound, something like that, um, probably a bit more. And, um, yeah, 19-something pound, super, super light 200-litre board. And I picked it up and I went, man. And he was actually a supplier. So he supplied foam and epoxy resin and materials to the sailboard guys. Um, and I was just doing a, a material run, picking up materials from the city. I saw this board he had and I said, on the spot, sell me everything I need right now so I can make surfboards like this. And um, I walked out with all the raw materials. I walked out with a vacuum pump and basically tried to start putting it together. Um, in fact, I didn't walk out that particular day because I had to order some foam from him. And what the service he also offered was designing rockers on computer. And then he would send a, a floppy disk off to the foam cutters and they would actually profile out the blank with the perfect rocker for you like hot in, wire in, a, in a block you know yeah it was like yeah. a computerized hot wire cutter so it wasn't that particular day that i walked out with everything but within the week i had everything i needed to start building boards so so the very first boards were basically like surf techs they just had an eps core they had high density pvc top and bottom and they just didn't go mm. I mean, they were just stiff. Yeah. Really stiff. Um, and so ultimately so, – I'm sorry to interrupt. One thing we haven't touched on yet is was the goal making something indestructible? No. 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 Okay. And I was about to actually – it's funny you say that because I was about to make that very point. My goal wasn't a durable board. My goal was better performance. Okay. All right. And so this board was just so stiff and it, it just didn't go, you know. It was like a copy of my favourite shape that I was riding in PU. So it's like, all right, well, I'll keep riding PU. Couldn't make that work. Right. So I realised I needed to make it with a bit more flex. So the next thing I tried was veneer. Um, so same lightweight, one-pound EPS core, veneer top and bottom, glass on the rail, super light. How is veneer different than PVC? Well, the PVC is about 80 kilo a cubic meter for weight. Okay. And it's about three millimeters thick. The veneer, I think I was using a beach or some sort of pine at the time. It was around about 500 kilo a cubic meter. So what, about six times heavier, but... It was 0.6 of a millimetre thick, so it was one-fifth of the thickness. So therefore, the weight range was about the same. Okay. But instead of using a thick three mil, which would create a lot more stiffness, the, the veneer would basically create more flex because it's thinner. Okay. I make this board. It's just got a veneer top and bottom, EPS core, um, and just glass on the rails. Pick it up, feels light. I remember paddling out and having a surf on it, and the first three waves were just amazing. Mm. In fact, it actually felt too light. But that, at the time, wasn't a weight issue. It was actually a flex issue. 
uh, in the sense that it was too flexy. Okay. And as you went into a turn, you flexed the board so much that it became really rocked, kind of hung up in the lip, and also there was nothing in the board to make it spring back, like that stringer that, to kick it back into shape. So, And a lot of people say now, oh, if you make a board too light, it doesn't work. That's actually not right. If you make a board too flexy, it doesn't work. Because generally light boards get flexier and they don't have the integrity to actually spring the rider back out of the turn. So this board was amazing. I caught three amazing waves on it where it was just so light, so sensitive, a little bit too flexy. Fourth wave took off, snapped it in the bottom turn. Um, it just had no strength. Yep. It just had glass on the rails and it just failed. Okay. Uh, but I was like, wow, there was, there was definitely something in that. So then it's like, okay, back to the drawing board. How can we make this thing stronger in the rails? Um, and so then I'm like, all right, I know what I'll do. Uh, I've got PU offcuts. And, you know, like if you get a blank and you pencil out the shape on the blank and you saw off, you've got these pieces of high-density PU foam or not high density, but, you know, PU foam. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I will stick some of that on the rails of the EPS and then put the veneer top and bottom. Uh, because I also struggled a little bit with that previous one, having uh, a hard wood veneer and having it on the edge and trying to get a rail shape with soft EPS and yeah. then trying to glass it. And it was all real messy. So I kind of thought, well, if I use a PU foam on the rails, it's going to be easier to get the rail shape. Gotcha. And anyway, so I did that, put PU on the rails, EPS in the middle, a veneer top and bottom, went out and rode that one. That one rode really well as well, but it also failed on the first surf. And it also felt still a little bit too flexy. So essentially I'm coming back going, right, my rails are letting me down. I need my rails to be stronger um, it failed in terms of it broke? It, it broke. It literally broke under my toes in a forehand bottom turn, under my back foot. Just loading that pressure, it just folded under my foot, right on the rail, right under my back foot. So that was two boards that failed in the same spot. So now I knew for sure that I needed more strength there, and I also knew I needed more stiffness. So then next thing I did was I got some veneer – and I laid it up so that it was about two millimetres uh, thick. I got three times 0.6 veneer, laid it up into some panels that were a little bit thicker. And this time when I put my foam rails on, I actually put some of that wood around the rail and then put the foam around it, wrapped it up in masking tape. So I had a little stringer that ran about an inch in from the rail. So I had like um, PVC top and bottom. Sorry, not PVC. But the veneer that the you veneer top glued into a ply essentially. Uh, the, only for the rails. Oh, okay. Only gotcha. for the rails. Gotcha. So I had the, the veneer, timber veneer 0.6 top and bottom. I had uh, a little mini three ply like what would it be? Two millimetres. What's that? I don't know, 332. I don't know. A little bit more than one sixteenth. Um, so that's standing perpendicular to the veneer. Correct. And Got that's it. running around the rail. Wrapped around the rail. And then about an inch outside of that, I had uh, a polyurethane foam blank offcut. Gotcha. And then that, I kind of used that to hold it all in place. Sure. So with that, 
I thought that's going to give me a bit more strength. It's not going to sort of fold under my back foot. Um, and it, and then the PU rail gave me something that I could get my rail profile out of. Shape. Yeah. So anyway, I rode that board and it was a massive step up in improvement. It actually went, it performed like that bit of wood in the rail, that, that stringer that was one inch from the edge. I felt the stiffness. It wasn't too flexy. The board was light. It performed. Um, but on the third surf, I creased it. I mean, the I just folded the whole board on the deck. In the centre? or In the centre, the under the front okay. foot this time. Okay. Um, and the thing basically failed. And so I'm like, well, damn it. Like, veneer's just too thin. Um, so I think, I can't remember where I went. I had some PVC left. I think I might have tried to... No, I actually had some I had some stuff I got from Midget Farrelly at Surf Blanks. It wasn't PVC, it was high density polyurethane and it was about 120 kilo cubic meter. So it was heavier than PVC and it's a sheet and it's a sheet and it was white. And so what I did was I used that on the deck. Still had my stringer in there. Still had my white uh, polyurethane foam rail and I had a veneer bottom. Now that one failed <laughs> and then look at, and it was around about that time I just felt like I, I'd learnt to vacuum bag and during this same process of exploring these different boards, um, I was also making timber deck polyurethane boards. So it was just a standard polyurethane board, vacuum bag, a sheet of timber on and it looked great. And so I was selling those and people were buying them. And so, you know, I was making income, doing timber decks, and I kind of learnt to vacuum bag because I'd been experimenting on the side. So now I had a product that I was producing with the vacuum bag process, and that was running. And I, and I kind of I, I came to the conclusion eventually, like, look, veneer, it's too thin, it doesn't work. Um, I can't get my rails to work. One of the other issues I was having too was that where that stringer was on the rail, the skin, when you stepped on it, because it was under your toe and heel, the veneer deck skin was popping. You know how a stringer on a normal board, you ride it for a while and the stringer kind of becomes proud and you, you pound all the, the yep. glass around next to it? Yep. Well, I had a similar thing happening under my toe and heel uh, on, the, on the stringer on the rail. So that was kind of like a failure as well. And so I sort of put a lot of this stuff away for a while, um, probably for about a year. I just, you know, like if I can't get them performing better than a PU, what's the point? So it's going to be the question I come back to. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, there was sort of, there was some promise in it, but I just felt like I was putting a lot of time and effort in, not quite really getting there. And I knew that I wanted a sandwich material that was thinner than PVC, that was thicker than wood. I knew I wanted my rails to have more guts or more meat in them because they were just too weak. I knew I wanted a sandwich material that was thicker on the top and thinner on the bottom, but not so extreme as the previous materials I was working with. I'd also done some work with extruded foam, um, and try to use that on the top and bottom, and that failed as well. Uh, that blue foam that the Salomons were made from, I was um, 
or it's called extruded. It's called XTR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was basically getting that in three and five mil sheets and bagging it on EPS, and that was failing too because the density was too light. So I kind of just gave up. And then one day, about a year later, this guy walks into my factory and he says, oh, would you like to buy some balsa? And I go, well, I don't know. How heavy is it? What's the density? He goes, oh, it's about 120 to 150 kilo cubic metre. All right. Uh, how thick is it? He goes, oh, any thickness you want, I'll machine it up for you. And I'm just like, ding. Like straight away I knew like the density was about right. If I could get it in any thickness I wanted, I knew I could put like a little bit less here and a little bit more there. I could put more on the rails. And honestly, the very first board I ever built, nothing has changed. From – from what you make now. From from 1991 Crazy. to 2019, everything is still the same size in the same place. The only thing that's changed over the years is the production process. Sure. Yeah. We've refined that. Yeah. Was the label at that time Sonova as well? Yes. Okay. Oh, it was actually Sonova Beach. Okay. Yeah. Quick break for a word from our sponsors, and then Bert will be back to tell us about his role in co-founding Firewire Surfboards. Hiring for a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. LinkedIn.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is LinkedIn.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Where does Firewire come into the into the game. <laughs> okay, so that was early 90s. Basically, so by by the beginning of 1992, I'd come up with a production process which was kind of functional. I had guys working for me. We were producing them and selling them. And by the beginning of 92, we'd sort of ironed out the kinks. There were still a few little kinks that we were having um, through 91 and a few failures. And But by the beginning of 92, it, it was kind of rolling. And we had a functional product in the marketplace and making, making dollars. Uh, within a few years, we were getting um, really good results from team riders. It started off at local level, then it went to state level, then it went all the way to national level, you know, both women's and men's winning national titles. 
and a lot of people wanted the boards and the business was kind of growing but it wasn't and my biggest mistake at the time was that look when when I started out in business uh, like I was trained as a surfboard builder all right then you get into the surfboard business and all of a sudden there's a lot more skills you need oh, yeah. you know you're you're the you're the front man you're dealing with sales you're dealing with um, marketing material you're dealing with invoicing and tax and hiring and firing and procuring raw materials and shipping and I mean the list just goes on you know you even psychology <laughs> so it's a it's a theme that comes up all the time on this podcast yeah is like the skill set to build good boards is entirely different than the skill set of running a business absolutely yeah. and we've seen a lot of big important builders never really achieve kind of financial success because yeah. they can't scale their business oh look I just probably wasn't aware maybe but if, if a big order came in and the shop said, hey, I want 20 boards, I'd be like, well, I, I can't afford to make you 20 boards. Yep. But really, like now, if someone says, I want 150 boards, I say, all right, we'll give us a deposit of 75000 and we'll get it started. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, it's business. That's it. So, so now we get paid up front before we even start building the boards and that enable us, enables us to provide the service. Of course. Um, and a few of my retailers mm -hmm. recognise this and they would say, hey, I want some boards, by the way, um, write me an invoice and I'll pay you tomorrow. So there was a few larger retailers that I dealt with that would deal with me that way and they'd get their boards. But it was just like I felt like I was going nowhere in the sense that it was just, just too hard. And whenever we got a little bit of media or press and team writers would do well, I'd be just spending all my time on the phone. Um and not building boards and right. not getting stuff done. And, and so I got to a point where I thought, no, nah, I don't think I'm cut out to run a business. Um, I've got this great product. Everybody wants it. Uh, at the time, I had like a two-year waiting list. Wow. That, that's how bad it was. And I'm thinking, i got to do something to get this product to the world and to grow this business. And, and I realised that I needed other people – with skill sets that I didn't have, both in terms of management and sales and marketing. And, and one of the other things too was uh, the boards were built completely by hand. Shaping machines were just starting to emerge. And I thought I've got to figure out a way of, of like mechanising this thing and, you know, getting machines to do more work and getting consistency. So, so they were some of the goals. So I ended up, I had a business which I scaled down. I had a, a retail outlet that I'd been running for about 17 years. It had a couple of factory units attached to it. So it was like shop out the front, factory out the back. Completely like closed that down. Moved to a new location. Just took one staff member with me. Had this really neat little state-of-the-art factory. Had a factory out the back, house out the front, little shop. Completely all owned, all gated. If you wanted to come and get a board, you had to ring me and make an appointment so no one could hassle me. Um, I'd answer my phone when I wanted. And I just went back to surfing, competitive surfing, doing a little bit of work, just enough to live, and getting out on the road and trying to find people to put this product in front of, those people that I said I was looking for, you know, with management yeah. skills and Business marketing partners. skills. Yeah. So eventually I met Nev Hyman yep. in 2004 
he's seen the boards and he's like, man, this is unreal. Uh, he So I, I went over, I flew over to the Gold Coast on the east coast of Australia to visit him. He's seen it. He loved it. I should take one little step back. Sure. Okay. I'd come up with another variation of a product. So I'd, I'd had the balsa boards running now for about 11 or 12 years. I'd been building the balsa boards and exactly in the format that you see here on the table. And during that time, I was also experimenting constantly with different materials, different ways of putting stuff together. Um, but I never found anything that was better than that. So I always thought to myself, and I never found anything that was actually better than PU either. You know, for me, PU was the benchmark um, in that because these boards are actually difficult to build. And I realised that I probably if I went to someone else with management and business skills, they'd see the way the product was built and go, oh, nah, just too hard. Like, yeah. yeah. Too many steps, too That's much labour. Too complicated, yeah. all the rest of it. And so, it also, we'll kind of come back to this too, but it also probably limits the customization. Right. Once you kind of lock into a model, if you're going to scale up, no, it doesn't limit customization. Well, not for what we do now. Okay. Um, because you're making them by hand for yeah. the most part. Well, we still use CNC. I suppose we can get to that. Okay. Track. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So it ended up, I'm, I'm experimenting the whole time. And then finally, I come up with something that's basically, it was, um, it was a type of high density polystyrene. The material was called SAN or styrene acrylonite. Very similar to PVC, had very similar properties as far as density and weight, but really good flex and shear properties. And so what I was then doing was I was building boards that had a high-density foam skin, top and bottom, but it was way more flexy than PVC and with the wooden rails. And that I took a version of that to see Nev, and he saw that and just went, wow, and it was crazy light. Like I think one of the boards I took to him was like um, just under 1.7 kilo, which is basically sub, well and truly sub four pound. And he sees it and just goes, wow. Um, he gave me a bunch of dimensions. I flew back to Western Australia, built a bunch of boards, came back in February for the Quicksilver Pro in 2005 Nev, you know, I made them clear, stickerless. Nev put a bunch of Nev stickers on them, took them down the Quickie Pro, threw them under the feet of a bunch of pros. Um, the, the the highest profile guy at the time who really liked it was Taj, and his comment was like it was like riding a slingshot off the top. Um, and so straight away Nev felt, yeah, we've got something here. I knew we had something. There was a product there that was better performing than PU. It was a lot simpler to build, so I knew it had legs. Um, and then it was a matter of just finding the right people to work with. So at that time, I moved my entire family across the country to the Queensland and basically teamed up with Nev, and Nev and I worked together, and what our general goal was, was, you know, I came in with the technology, he has the ability to raise finance and do promotion and marketing, and we'd form a business together, Um we spent the next months putting together like offer documents, trying to get investors, um, as well as setting up a little production facility in Queensland to produce boards, both under his label and mine. So I gave Nev the the foam sandwich top and bottom wood rail, uh, what he went on to call Future Shapes technology. I said, look, you put your Nev label on that, 
and I'll put my son over label on the balsa boards. And because I already had a two-year waiting list, I was also wanting to ramp up production on that side of the country. There's a whole industry in southeast Queensland. You've got glasses, yeah. sanders, shapers. I mean, Laborers. Labor. Yeah. So in, the, in that environment, I could fulfil my orders that I had under the Sunover label. Nev had a really cool product that he could promote and together we would sort of work and try and raise some finance and get something off the ground. Um, Did you have an idea for how much capital you would need? Oh, look, it was kind of – it was in the millions. Yeah. Um, was there anybody else in the surfboard world at that time um, that had that much capital invested in something? Salomon. Okay. Salomon was big. I think – I'm not sure if they were still running at the time, but um, afterward yeah. – because I had friends that were actually in the Salomon business and involved with it because they had their manufacturing facility in Western Australia, just up the road from where I was based. Okay. So I kind of had friends that were in that business. But I think Salomon eventually had uh, about a $12 million mm, total of money that they poured into that before they decided they were going to shut the doors. Yeah. I mean, it'd be who'd be better timing for you if they hadn't shut the doors at that point? Because <laughs> if you see somebody go bust with that type of investment, it would make investors weary. Well, that's exactly what happened, okay? So we're going to mainstream investors, you know, people from the golf club. We, we, we brought this guy in to try and help us find investors and people looked at it and just went, nah. You know, they just didn't get it. Then a guy called Dougal Walker, who was the ex-CEO of Billabong, he had sold his shares out uh, about 18 months earlier for like $66 million out of Billabong. And he was just basically had been laying on the couch for 18 months going, oh, what am I going to do? Um, you know, just kicking back. Nev went and knocked on his door. He saw the board, went, yep, that's cool. He rode the board. He went, yep, I'm in. You know, there's something here. He could feel it. It was light. It was strong. It performed. And he came in. He bought a friend uh, who was also out of Billabong, Matthew Perrin. He was their lawyer. Um, and these both these guys came in. They literally like bang, bang, threw a million dollars in each. And as soon as they came in, and, and that, they're kind of known in investment circles, you know, as being like astute, clever investors. As soon as they came in, all the people we'd previously spoke to went, oh, I changed my mind. I want in now. I want in. But it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. So those guys threw some solid money at it. Um, we went to San Diego. We did a trade show. I think it was January. Pretty sure. Oh, it might have been one. Well, I don't know. I can't remember. But yeah, it was. It was definitely. It must have been January. There was a trade show here in January, um, and that's when he got Mark Price and he got Chewy Rayner. Got hold of Dan Mann. It's kind of sort of selected a core group of crew and within a few months the name Firewire had emerged and it was the beginning of a business, um, March 2006. Is Firewire a reference to the hot wire, like the cutting mechanism? Uh, look, I don't know. Look, you, you're probably going to have to ask Mark Price. He actually came up with the name. Apparently he was like on the plane and pulled something out of his bag and I think it's some like electronic device or something. Mm. In, in reference to that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. I always thought it was just, I mean, you cut EPS block with a hot wire. Yeah. And I thought that's fire, hot, wire. Wow. Look, I suppose that's an interesting take on it. <laughs> yeah. Like I know I had a Shapers logo once 
and it was a hamburger with the meat taken out and a surfboard put in and it was, you know, Surf Shapes by Burt Berger. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, and people would look at it and go, oh, hey, oh, you got that logo because you do sandwich construction. Oh, okay. And I'm like, well, no, but convenient. that's another take on it. That's yeah. super convenient that that's your last <laughs> yeah. name. Okay, so that is the founding team of Firewire. Yeah. You guys have flush with capital. You got an A-list team yeah. of kind of every marketing, CEO, builders, all of it. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So you're building boards in Queensland. Yeah. And where does it go from there? Well, literally you got a pocket load full of cash. So um, Dougal was the main driver at that point. At Mark as well, in different ways. Sure. You know, like, like Mark was really driving the whole sales and marketing strategy. Dougal sort of sat over the top and sort of just drove the business in general and there was a number of key things that had to happen. One is, uh, Dougal always spoke about um, excuse me. Dougal always spoke about speed to market. So he wanted to get production set up ASAP. So he was really just banging on all the go buttons, and we got a lot of people in. We had a lot of staff in a lot of different departments, um, and just like literally starting everything at once. And this was so foreign to me, you know, because when I started my business uh, like, what, 17 years earlier, uh, 18 years earlier, I'd started my business with $2,000 and just slowly kind of built my way up, you know, start with five, then I can afford to build six. And, and eventually you sort of, you got a shop, you got it full of stock, you're supplying a bunch of other retailers and just slowly built it up, you know, never had debt, never made any crazy decisions. And next minute you're in a company and you're just seeing millions of dollars yeah. getting pumped in and and a lot of different people coming in saying they had this skill set or that skill set, bluffing their way into a job, some crew. Some crew were good, some crew weren't. It was kind of chaotic. It's but scary. Essentially we had to get production set up quick. So we, we built a bigger production facility in Queensland and we hired more people and I had to sort of get those guys trained had to come over to San Diego here and train the guys in San Diego. So my role in the business was to basically um, design the uh, production flow, the basic production system, uh, procure the equipment, the vacuum pumps, the CNC machinery, all the various equipment we would need to produce the boards um, create a basic floor plan and flow plan, how they would flow through the factory and identify how many staff and what skill set we needed and then go on to train those staff and get the boards out the door. So that was kind of my role. Did you have any idea of how many boards you would need to manufacture? What was your target for a year? Oh. And I know it's all growth and projections, but do you remember the numbers at all? Just to Yes, get people I do remember okay. the numbers. Uh, the overheads got that big that quickly that the break-even point was 540 boards a week. 540 a week. I'm going to do the math. 27,000 boards. 27 or 28,000 boards a year. Okay. So I don't know. Do the math. What do you get? 28,080. Okay. <laughs> 28,000 boards a year. That Out of two factories. Well, we only had one at the time. Okay. But- um, then San Diego, 
Okay, so it was Queensland, then San Diego, and then eventually I was sent to Thailand to set up a production facility there. And so, you know, let I think, me let me uh, dig into that. So we we were trying to get about sixty boards a week out of Queensland. We were trying to get about sixty boards a week out of San Diego, and then the guys wanted about four hundred boards a week out of the Thai facility. Why would the Thai facility be able to accommodate those numbers when the San Diego and Queensland couldn't? <laughs> that is a really, really good question. And again, Dougal's answer was, he who holds the gold rules. And so I didn't agree with all, you know, the direction and where the business was going, but essentially they were looking at it as, well, volume of staff, cheap labour, you know, go in there, because look, when I was in Queensland, I was dealing with guys that knew what they did. I mean, the, the people that walked in the door in the initial stages, sanders, glasses, laminators, people who could spray, do you know, so it wasn't that hard to train them. Come to San Diego, it's like the mecca of board building in this region. You've got a long history of, of craftsmen who know what they're doing. And then I go to Thailand and I'm expected to get like 400 boards a week out of a bunch of rice farmers. I mean, I, and and then the crew up in management are like, what's Bert doing over there? <laughs> it's, yeah. just, it's like, it, it was physically impossible. It reminded me of the story of Stiltskin, you know, where he locks that girl in that room and says, turn all this drawer into gold. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. Was the idea, though, that you can um – the Thai employees will be more efficient? Like each individual employee will have more output than an individual employee here? Or was mm. it just we're going to have a larger footprint and have more employees? Just more employees okay. and the, you know, just, just cheaper labor. Like in, in general, if you look at, a you know, someone who's working in the Western world in some sort of manufacturing job and you're looking at someone in Thailand, you're probably looking at a roughly about a, a 10 to 1 yeah. ratio for labor costs. You know, so if if someone if someone over here is making, you know, fifteen dollars an hour, well, in Thailand they're making a dollar fifty an hour, yeah. but it's not that it's not ten to one because essentially it still takes at least two or more Thai workers to actually produce what one good, sufficient Western worker, skilled laborer, skilled laborer, as far as output is concerned. The biggest reason is Thailand predominantly most of the year is like 100 degrees and 100% humidity. So as soon as you – like as soon as I walk out onto the factory floor, I'm drowning in my own sweat and I haven't even started work yet. So that obviously creates issues just with kind of um, employee output and efficiency and their well-being, but does it also create efficient or problems with lamination? Like it's it's better for epoxy. Oh, it is. Okay, it's better because okay. it's, it's so warm. It's like. But even the humidity. Uh the humidity can create issues. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So do you, would was there an option to do the lamination in a controlled environment? Yeah. yeah absolutely. Okay. Yeah. okay. Okay. Well, let's get back to um, your job as kind of training everybody. Were you? Could you bring skilled laborers with you to actually do the hands-on training? Right. Well, so once. Once I'd established that the task I'd been given was the impossible, um, that was basically it. You know, put my hand up, 
uh, and asked for more guys to come, um, both from America and from Australia, to all come in, you know, seven or eight of us, you know, because you're training that many staff. Like, uh, look, anyone who's in the surfboard industry, they understand how difficult it is to just train one person and integrate one person into a team, an existing team of four or five people. You imagine starting with 40, 50 people that have never even seen a surfboard? I mean, where do you start? So Part of me thinks it's almost better. Like I almost understand their philosophy of like, it's easier just to train somebody from scratch than it is to take somebody who's used to working with, let's say, PU, and then making them relearn yeah. And they're going to have resistance, just naturally built up reticence. You are you know? 100% correct there. It, 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 like, I mean, I had a lot of drama over the years with anyone, even when my business was based in Western Australia, I preferred to bring someone in off the street and train them from scratch. Yeah, yeah. Because so many things were different. There's a certain logic to working with PU that just doesn't apply to epoxy. You know, I'd get laminators come in and go, oh, I, I wanted to go off quicker, so I put more hardener in it. Well, in epoxy, that just doesn't work. It's an exact ratio of molecule to molecule. And so in, in epoxy, a hot brew is an accurate brew. Um, so just a mindset like that, just with different things, handling the boards, uh, technique, there's a lot of different things. And so it was actually easier. So you are correct. There are issues you face when you're trying to train crew who – have an existing knowledge of something similar but not the same. You know, there's, there is resistance. Um, but it's still hard starting with that many people from scratch. Yeah. So were you successful in uh, bringing production up to 400 boards? Well, yeah. We kind of – look, at, at that point, I think, I think the numbers did get hit. I, I was out not long after that, to be honest. Um, I'd, I'd sort of kicked and screamed to have more guys come over. I, I, you know, I think probably the way that I was approaching Mark Price and Dougal, I, I think I was pissing them off, you know. Yeah. I was basically like, how can I say this without like, you know, are you going to beep any of this out later? No, we don't need to. Well, you, you can cuss all you want. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't edit if you say anything you wish you did. All right, no, no. So, so basically here's me getting really pissed off at Dougal and Mark going, fuck, what are you guys doing? You know, send us some workers, get this thing going on. I can't do this alone, you know. So, and, and repeatedly in emails and phone calls, I felt like I just wasn't getting the point across, you know. They, they thought they could just send one guy to Thailand. He could train four, he could train, you know, 40, 50 people and they could make 400 boards a week and it was just going to happen in a few months. No concept, you know, and so that was really frustrating for me that the people that were making decisions were just making really fucked up decisions. So I kicked and screamed and eventually we got more guys in and it was understood, but I just felt like I just was banging my head against a wall for a few months. It was frustrating. A um, whole bunch of other guys come in. It did start getting up and going. One of the other things too is because the original product was built in a certain way with certain materials, you know, like I said, with the styrene acrylonite, which gave it certain performance properties. Uh, I was doing some pretty tech stuff as far as um, prefabricated, laminated, vacuum form skins. There was a bit of tech involved. 
there was infrastructure and both labour and the guys that came in with me or after me to sort of teach the crew, they all sort of had their own ideas and they're like, you know what, if we do it this way, we can chop two days off the production process. Oh, if we do it this way, if we use this glass, we're going to save a few dollars a metre. Um, hey, if we change the sandwich material from SAN to a high-density PU, we can save $11 a board. And so crew was sort of and, – and so, and so I, I really felt like I just lost control. Like I just totally lost control of, of the product, what the final product was going to be, um, the direction of the business. I just had no say in it. I, I was basically just like a staff member. So I – you know, when I – Initially, when I teamed up with Nev, I sort of had this different picture of the future. And, <coughs> excuse me, it just wasn't going that way. So I started to get very frustrated with the fact that the boards were changing and they were turning into something completely different. And uh, it was about that point where I thought, now, I don't know if I want to be part of this. I also had customers that were ringing me up and they were getting these new boards and they were they were actually disappointed with them because they weren't at the standard of the boards I was producing out of Western Australia. And so – and, and I, look, and I really want to make this point here because Dougal would pull me aside all the time and ask me to assess a new layup or a new production process and say – you know, re, you really ask me the, the, de, the detailed questions – and at the, at the end of it all, <coughs> excuse me again, at the end of it all, he would say, okay, is this layup with this type of fabric and this type of foam, is it better or worse than a PU? And I'd look at it, I'd check the density, and I'd be thinking, right, the density, the shear forces, elongation strength, tensile strength, okay, uh, glass, resin, and, you know, sort of just weigh up the structure and I'd go, well, yeah, yeah, it's probably still better than a PU. Okay, good to go. And so Dougal's thing was we don't need to make the Rolls-Royce of surfboards here. That's not what we're here for. We're here to bring a product to market and it's got to be better than the status quo. And me being a somewhat, you know, the creative, temperamental, artistic type just couldn't stomach that. And yeah, I understand both sides of the story. Yeah. Like he has to see a profit, especially yeah. with that many different people's money yeah. rolled into it. You yeah. want to return. A, and if there's, I mean, okay. So my question to you is, is there a way to scale and not lose any of the quality that you were looking for? Uh, Could they have achieved both goals in hindsight? Well, look, that's what we – okay, so that was – at the time, that was 2007 and I kind of got out and went back to Sunover. And, look, it's taken us a long time. It's 12 years later. We're sort of still here. We're not here in a massive way, but, like, my, my philosophy is this. I will grow my business as quickly as I'm able to put a quality product out the door. As soon as shit goes out the door, whoa, you yeah. know, like, just hold yeah. on there back up a little um bit. you know so we've we've had periods where we've grown then we've just leveled off we've grown we've leveled off um you know i think if you just try and throw everything at it um 
you know, look, if there's one area where, where I was definitely wrong was that I, I really honestly thought that Firewire would fail, like, at, at, you know, within 18 months of, of its start. Just because you could see how much capital was being the capital, funneled. the yeah. amount of rejects, the amount of problems, and I just thought it was all too big to keep together. But, look, it's a total credit, like, hats off to the skill set of, look, especially Mark Price. Like, he was a real driver um, and super, super impressed with that guy's uh, – professionalism and and motivation and just the ability to kind of pull it all together yeah um you know and, and to go on and to raise more capital over the years and to just keep the thing afloat and guys that they bought in to take care of quality control who did a good job the training after me i mean you know they got it together eventually what i'm shocked by is people's threshold for pain you know like even like uber just ipo'd recently and it's like they're losing money hand over fist like they're just bleeding money for the last 10 or 12 or 10 years or whatever they've been around and it doesn't matter people just keep pumping capital into it because the end goal we've seen the end goal pay off for amazon and for facebook and there's these unicorn promises that people think that they can become and i like you don't have that level of i don't have that threshold for pain but there's people that are smarter than us and there's people that earn more than us because they have that, you know? Yeah. There's well, a way, there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat. There's a lot of different ways to run your business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I know Firewire basically didn't make money for the, you know, from the time they started and up until the time Kelly Slater purchased it. Yeah. Um, well, that's you know, common nowadays yeah. in business. Yeah, yeah. Just sort of bled out money the whole time. But uh, yeah, look, I suppose it's one way to set up a business, isn't it? Apparently it is nowadays. Um, what what was your exit like? I would assume if you were ground level, you had shares, ownership, a, a small percentage of shares. Look, did you keep th it? Th this is this is another sort of you know complicated story. I actually I bumped into Nev. I, I was a little dark on Nev for a while because initially we kind of went into business as fifty fifty. Somehow Nev skewed it a little bit. So that it turned it out more like ninety eight two. That's a big difference yeah, from fifty yeah. fifty. I thought you were going to say sixty forty. <laughs> nah. But then, um, look, the, you know, the crew came in, money came in, things kind of evened out a bit. Um, funny enough, I, I bumped into Nev the other day, and I'm still on good terms with him. You know, because it's all a learn. You know, look, as long as nobody gets killed, it's all a it's all a learning experience. Yeah. Um, as you go through life. And Nev was telling me that um, he goes, you know what, Bert? I, I know you think that I ripped you off and that you got, you know, hardly anything out of Firewire and that I walked away with a lot. But you know what? And he sort of explained some of the things that he had back then. Each time the company needed to um, raise more money, that bitch basically just take some more shares off of Nev. Until eventually, and then at times, Nev had to buy back in to keep his shareholding, like at a certain point. Um, and so in the end, Nev said, look, you know, it actually cost me more money. Uh, Firewire cost me more than I made. And I could see that, you know, and, I've, sure. and, and with business that I've done over the years, I mean, you know, I've had to actually buy into my own company, you know, just to keep yep. my shareholding when we've had other guru come in with a little bit more as well. So, so you when know, you exited Firewire, you relinquished your shares? I basically got, uh, I got, a, I organized a little bit of a payout and I also sold my shares completely. I just wanted out, 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 out. At that time, I wanted every cent I could get. I believe that any money that I left in there, I would never see. So yeah. I, 
And again, I was totally wrong in one sense. But um, yeah, so I wanted to just get out with what I could at the time, and then use what I what I could get to go and set up my own facility in Thailand with the Sunover factory. It would be common practice for them to have you sign a non-disclosure. Correct. Yeah. Did they? Yes. Oh. Yep. Yep. Even though you had Sunova prior and during, they still had you sign that. And what did that preclude you from doing? What did that uh, limit you from? It precluded me from having, I had to remain more than a 50% shareholder in my own business. Okay. So obviously with the resources that I had, it meant that I wasn't going to be able to go out and get millions of dollars to, you know, finance a business. Um, so that kind of meant that I would stay small. Uh, they put a limit as far as the amount of surfboards uh, I could build, you know. So it was like, you know, even though they had the technology, they still let me walk away with the same technology. Interesting. Yeah because I was sort of already doing it beforehand anyway, and I'm yeah. kind of like, well, what? I'm out, and you guys are going to stop me from making a living? That's pretty hard. Yep. You know, so they kind of still had this. And basically I had to sort of, um, yeah, so it was, there was a limit on the amount of boards I could build, a limit on how much of my company I had to own. I had to own more than 51% of it, um, and it was basically don't say nothing to the media. Yeah, and then I did. For how many years? Because here we are now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think there was about three years oh, of it. Okay, we're um, way past that. But so and then I was gonna, and then I was gonna be paid off progressively over twelve months. This sum of money. Okay. And after about nine months, I did just I, I made a comment in the and it was a real benign comment, like it was not even anything nasty. But uh, I did make a comment about Firewire. I can't even remember what it was now, but it was you know probably give or take around. November or December 2007, and uh, yeah, they fined me and they basically withheld my payments and they're like, look, we're serious. Yeah. You signed a contract. Yeah. Don't say nothing to the media, mm -hmm. you know, and even though I didn't say nothing bad, um, I said something. Yep. Yeah, and so. Was, With the benefit of hindsight, would you have exited that relationship any differently or would you have stayed in it maybe? Would you have done anything different? Oh, look, there's no way I could have stayed in that business. Um, like being like, you know, a, a board designer and the creative type, um, I felt it was just too much structure for me. Yeah. It, it's just, yeah. It seems like you had a mutual agreement with that. You know, like they were hoping, they knew what your strengths were and were hoping that you could step into the role of operations manager yeah. when that's not your skill set. Well, my, my main role was actually at first was get production up and running. Right. Once production was up and running, then I was basically um, like head of R&D. Which is and, where you're probably best yeah, utilized. And, and we yeah. were doing some cool stuff in R&D, but I couldn't, for some reason, um, I would see issues with operations and – I'd be like interfering in that, going, what are you doing? This production manager we got, he's a, he's a turkey. Like, look at, you can't, you know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, so in that sense, it's understandable. I, they, I wasn't doing stuff in my own little sandbox. I wasn't playing in my box. Um, and I kind of felt that I was more than that yeah. as far as, you know, just overall direction, business, board designer, 
so on. Yeah. So when you left, what was your morale like? And then how inspired were you to innovate at Sonova and go get that up and running? Oh, absolutely. So look, um, I think Nev was kind of surprised. He, he thought that um, I may walk away just totally dejected, like my life was over. But in the end, like I was stoked. Like I, I mean, I – so I, officially I was kind of let go, but I was let go because um, I behaved in such a way that it made it easy for them to let me go. Mm-hmm. And, and my end goal was to get out. Yep. Yeah, so it kind of worked. So I was actually really happy. Look, I had a little bit of money. I could go back to my own business. Um, I'd learnt a lot. I mean, at that level, you know, going off to another country, setting up a production facility in another country and all the logistics that goes with it and the training, working with really professional people in all sorts of levels, Um you know, working with robots, working with CNC machinery, interfacing design software. You know, like I'm a fast learner. I've done some really cool shit over the years. And so um, basically, like, so interfacing design software with CNC machinery, creating new production processes. Like I was on a roll, you know, and I just set that up. I thought, right, I'll do the same again. I'll go set up my own factory. I just R&D'd a process in Firewire. I literally hadn't quite finished it. But I'd just seen it through to like to the point where I was about to go to management and say, check out this new production process and this new product. Um, and then I was kind of out before then. So I kind of just grafted that straight into the setup of my of Sunova uh, 2.0, so to speak. Um, and that process was essentially, um, you know, doing having the rails, the shape, vacuum bagging the top and bottom and it was a one-shot process okay a lot of the times when guys are vacuum bagging um you know you may have with with super light core material free bagging is like a no-no um and so i came up with a process where instead of the typical two two vacuum bag process i was able to do it in one shot gotcha so it's just a simpler process so that One more sponsor break, and then Bert will be back to tell us about why he's chosen to build Sonova surfboards in Thailand. We will be right back. Um, you elected to set up your Sonova factory in Thailand as well. Yeah. What was behind that decision? Well, okay. There was a number of things. When I left Western Australia to go move over east, when it, when it was all official and Firewire was going to go and there was some money in my pocket. I, I sold my house in Western Australia for around about $380,000 and then I moved over to Queensland and I purchased another house just for a little bit more, you know, four thirty or something, so I had a little bit of a mortgage, but that was no big deal. Um, then the West Australian economy just went through the roof. and Due to like mining and that sort yeah, of Yeah, there was a mining boom <clears throat> and – you know, I'm prepared to pay a guy six or seven hundred dollars a week, and I'm looking for a skilled craftsman. Um, and yet, you could be fresh out of school, and you could go and get a job on a mine site as a surveyor's assistant, and just stand there with a stick in the desert and get paid two thousand dollars a week. I mean, yep. it was crazy. Yep. So, getting skilled labour was impossible. Uh, and with that mining boom. My housing prices went through the roof. So, like eighteen months later, 
my my house in Western Australia was now worth eight hundred thousand dollars. Oh man! <laughs> and I'm like, well, I, I can't go back to Western Australia because I can't afford to. Yeah. Um, and I can't even afford to get staff. So I thought my only chance of staying in Australia and building being a board builder would be to just be a little backyarder, you know, like craftsman, uh, what do you know, point of difference, something unique, and that that was never my end goal. My end goal was to grow this thing, not only satisfy my customers, but I wanted to take this product to the world. The other thing is being a backyarder also limits the amount of R&D that you can do. As well. Tremendously. Yeah, unless it, it depends on the, the your setup. Like if you, if you own your own property and your overheads are low, then essentially you don't need to do a lot of work yeah. to survive sure. and then you've got time for R&D. You know, like when your overheads are high and there's a lot of stress – then yeah. R&D is difficult. So, but your goal is get the product to the world. Get the product to the world. And that, that was always my goal, even before teaming up and starting Firewire and teaming up with Nev. And when I was training staff in Thailand, and this was the really cool thing, um, when I was in Australia, it was barely, I would, look, I, I used to say about one in 10, but realistically it was probably about one in eight people that I trained. So out of every eight people that I trained to try and build boards, one had the hand skills and was good enough to stay in the industry and make a living and go on whether he they worked for me or somebody else, they could make an income. And in the surf industry, it's generally piecework. So you get paid per sand job, per glass job, per shape, whatever. And so I never actually had to fire anybody because guys would come in and, you know, if you're getting paid $20 for a sand job and you're blowing it out in 30 minutes and it's perfection and someone else is getting paid $20 for a sand job and it's taken them an hour and a half and there's glitches in it. Um, they sort themselves out. Yeah. You know, they just – people realise, hey, look, I'm not cut out for this job because they can clearly see someone else is making kick-ass money and they can't. Yeah. Um, so it was basically about one in eight people – uh, who were good and the other seven just faded away. They didn't have the hand skills um, or the skill set. Moved to Thailand, I've basically just got a, a motley crew and it was about like one in eight who were no good. I mean, seven of them just pick up a tool, follow you straight away. I mean, I, I've never seen anybody collectively as a culture uh, that were just so good with their hands, so inclined. And then there's parts of Thailand that have been renowned to, to, to push out really high-quality arts and crafts, jewellery, furniture, artisans, art, for like a 1,000 years. So, I mean, it's really in their blood to, to, to push out, uh, you know, handcrafted stuff. And so during Firewire... Um, I realised that and I went, well, that, that's where i got to be. You know, Our product, it's a high labour product. It's got a lot of man hours in it and it needs highly skilled labour. And so I thought I've, I've got to be in Thailand because if I'm there, I can produce a quality product. So it was wanting to produce quality. It was also wanting to get the product to the world and, and having giving everybody an opportunity to ride this type of board and construction. Um and the fact that I, I had a foot in the door with Firewire sending me over there and I'd made some good acquaintances and some good connections to, to be able to get set up by myself. Um, cost. Cost. I mean, it's probably at a certain scale, 
it's simply not feasible to produce that amount of boards uh, for a price that would be competitive on the market if you're doing them in Australia or the US. Absolutely. If I was producing our boards in Australia, they basically would be $3,000 surfboards. Really? Yeah. They would just be, you know, but based on what you need to pay people. Like, I mean, they even when I was in Australia, they were subsidised. Okay. You know, they were just, you know, they, they cost twice as much to produce. There was twice as much labour. Um, and yet, and they were in the factory for twice as long. Yeah. So they took up, you know, twice as much space, time, slash, you know. Um, and essentially I sold them for 20, 20% more. So they, they were heavily discounted already. That's That's somewhat, you know, we've been able to, uh, improve that situation operating out of Thailand. Okay. But but they still are subsidised. I mean, the, the value that you get for money with this construction and everything that's in them, and, and I mean, they're, they're built with love. I'm, I'm going to have to say they are built with love. Yeah. Yeah. Part of kind of the moral quandary that comes up whenever this conversation arises out of, you know, outsourcing manufacturing is um, – Well, it's not it, – I think in our case it's not really outsourcing because you know I live there, I have my own factory, uh, I go well, surfing with my staff. Where are the boards sold mainly? Uh, key markets for sales. Key key market. Look, I say Australia is probably fifty percent of our market. Okay. Um, I would say Europe is probably about twenty five percent of our market, um, and that's the whole of Europe. You know, that's like France and. Portugal and England and the Netherlands and Germany and Denmark and you know that's you know I think we just got a new dealer in Greece and uh, you know someone in Italy sort of you know in Israel so you know twenty five percent to Europe fifty percent to Australia you know we got a few that go to New Zealand we got a few that go to Japan Indo Sri Lanka of all places um, Taiwan um, yeah and then. Uh, Probably I'd say 25% Europe, 50% Australia, um, maybe 5% America, and that's growing. And I'd say there'd be 15 or 20%, which you could just spread between little dotted places around the world, you know, like... Well, let's yeah. not, we won't use the term outsource then, but just um, with Asian manufacturing and the surfboard industry, let's say. Yeah. The moral dilemma, I think the conversation has evolved over time and it used to just be like, oh, if it's Asian made, it's inferior. Mm. And I don't feel like that's necessarily the conversation anymore. It's more a concern about, we know what labor standards are in the US and Australia. We know what um, EPA standards are. We know what disposal standards are. And so we know if we're buying local or if we're buying domestic, let's say, that it might be more expensive, but the workers have a safe work environment, assuming I, that it's up to code and all that sort of I, stuff. I I believe there is a lot of baseless propaganda. And that's why I want to ask you. Yeah, is because like, when when I was in a, like Australia, man, I've seriously, I've walked into so many disgusting workshops, right? Um, both in Australia and America. Mine was usually pretty good. It was a little rough when I first started and it got better and better over the years. Um, I used to spit out all my toxic shit straight into the environment. Uh, my dust would just bellow straight out the door or out the 
extraction fan. Uh, my phone would just go in the bin and the rubbish truck would come and collect it and it would go into landfill. Was your factory built to code? Well, and was it signed off by the authorities? Australia was pretty slack, gotcha. I will admit. Okay, So I, I spewed way more toxic shit into the environment in Australia. When I got to Thailand, I was really surprised. Thailand's biggest asset are their people. And I mean, the government is really, really good at getting every cent of tax. It, 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 there's a lot of bureaucracy. Their environment, look, I don't know, it's kind of a mixed bag because their environmental standards are quite high when it comes to dust and pollution, but it's really low when it comes to shitting in the river. You know, so <laughs> it's kind of like this. It's a bit of a double standard <laughs> there, funny. you know. They kind of just or, treat rivers like sewage systems, you know. It's yeah, kind yeah. of annoying. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I would often have a black van pull up with, like, um, factory inspectors, and that would be all over my factory going, this van's not right. No, you're letting too much dust out here. You know, the, your fire extinguishers are in the wrong location and they're too far apart and they're the wrong height off the ground. And I mean, these guys were just all over us. So the standards are actually really, really high in Thailand. Look, I, I can't talk for China, but in Thailand, if you walk into any facility in Thailand and it's a manufacturing facility, you will just be blown away by how clean and spotless and flawless it is and how well it's run. Um and you can afford to do that because you can throw the people at it and because the government really requires that you keep the place pristine and clean. Yeah. And they really require that the workers get, you know, insurance and they get a hospital card and there's workers' compensation. And I mean, there's no skimping on that. As a foreign-owned business coming in, you are really under pressure to look after your workers, give them, you know, top dollar, top treatment, and as well as that, follow the standards that they've set in place. And so when you come to our factory, like nothing leaves the factory. We have a machine that actually melts our foam and all our foam offcuts and it melts it into these plastic blocks and we sell those plastic blocks back to the EPS company and they do something with it and they turn it back into EPS again. Yep. So we, we have very little waste. We're actually starting to collect a lot of waste. We've got some other ideas, but our, our goal is to be zero waste. Um, and at this point, we've probably eliminated close to 98% of it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, impressive. Uh, and there was one other point, I think, oh, uh, the whole Asian-made thing being inferior. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, for one, the EPA standards are not lower. They're actually higher. For two, the workers and the standards by which you need to treat them are actually higher and not lower. And as far as the... The product being inferior, look, that may change factory to factory, but but with us, you know, like me personally, I live there, I'm on the ground, I'm walking around the factory every day, I'm dealing with my staff, they're my friends, I go surfing with them. Um, and to say that, you know, it's Asian made and it's inferior, um, you know, like I've, I've got a young guy who's one of our team riders, he's actually competing in the World Games at the moment. Oh, he's, really? he's a Thai kid, he's young. He's clever. He is now designing his own boards, all right? So in 10 years' time, he could be a legit shaper, board shaper, board designer, a kid's tie. Is that – so So what? The people in America think that because he's Asian doesn't qualify him to come into the board industry and produce surfboards? You know, like what's, what's your opinion on that? 
I don't think that's the conversation anymore. I think it was the conversation five and 10 years ago yeah. where again, the blanket was just Asian made is inferior. Um, I think the people who have uh, argued that angle kind of run the conversation off into a ditch yeah. and it starts to look racist and it starts to look, yeah. you know, it's just not, um, it's just not a salient argument. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll throw my weight in as well. I have seen factories in China and there are places where, you know, I, I feel our factory is a little different. We put it where it is because it's got the best waves in Thailand. And I believe that the surf industry is a lifestyle industry and that it's a lifestyle, not just for the CEO or the guy who started the business, yep. but it's a lifestyle for everybody that comes into that business yep. and that you'd want to work there. Look, man, there's a lot of manufacturing facilities in China and they're a thousand kilometers away from the coast and you've got guys hand shaping boards and never even seen the water. Yep. So there is that side of the coin that, you know, there, yeah. there are Asian sweatshops, they are there, but we're not one. Yeah. Right. And to be honest, I don't even know anybody that rides those boards. Mm. And like even the large manufacturers whose boards we see on tour and all that sort of stuff over the years, they've all adopted or adapted their business to where they're manufacturing local in the area where they're selling the boards oftentimes, yep. you know, so they're not shipping containers. Well, well Bali's also become stuff. quite a large manufacturing totally. hub now too. Totally. You know, like within the last probably <laughs> 10 to 12 years, Look, there's there's probably close now to about thirty five thousand boards a year being built on Bali, yeah, and sort of shipped out to the US and to Australia. And I and I see crew, you know, bagging some of my friends who have taken their production to Bali and saying they're lost, they've like sold out. And I think, well, that, that's ridiculous. Like Bali is a surfing nation. It's, yeah. it's all Indo's a surfing country. Yeah, totally. Um, and look, even right now at the 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 ISA World Surfing Games, there's there's fifty five countries now competing in the surfing and seriously surfboards could be made in all 55 of those countries and why wouldn't it be legitimate no it would be legitimate yeah. the what you want to bank on is that they're skilled employee skilled laborers yeah. who know how to manufacture the other thing is that the raw materials are of the same quality that they might be yeah. in the industry or in the countries where those things were pioneered. That, that, that kind of takes time. Got, like, I yeah, remember in the course. early days seeing really average boards coming out of Europe Yeah, um, when, you know, at the time the best boards were basically built Australia, California, Hawaii. Of course. Um, and, so yeah. All of that makes sense that these things just take time to develop a supply yeah. chain and the labor force and all that sort of thing. Um, but the detail about are the employees taken care of, is there EPA standards, I think the reason why Thailand hasn't or kind of gets painted with that brush is that the companies who have set up large scale manufacturing there take a closed lip policy. Yeah. They go and they do it and then they don't speak to media. Yeah. So it's easy for all of these, <coughs> the U S and Australia basically to just throw stones. It's, it's kind of uncool. Like I remember um, in the early days when I was first seeing uh, a lot of imported boards coming into Australia around the early 90s. And, and one brand that came to mind was Aloha. Um, they were getting, uh, you know, they were just building a few customs locally. They're getting all their production boards coming out of Thailand. And, for, and, a, and a lot of different companies were doing it, not just them. And really it was almost like a taboo subject. Yeah, You, you didn't want to let people know. It was kind of uncool, you know, because there was this um, – yeah, people didn't like it, you know, the general perception in the public. For us now, 
we're actually proud of the fact that we're based in Thailand and, and the way we've set up our factory in that the way it's set up next to the waves. You know, I'll show you some pictures in my phone later. You'll freak when you see how good the waves are. Oh, shit. Oh, no, no. Then there's no waves. <laughs> <laughs> I'll fuck that up. Um, That's the first rule of surfing, man. You just blew it. <laughs> um, yeah, so look, we've got really nice waves. It's a beautiful place to live. Our staff surf. Um, and so many of them are so good with their hands. You know, like, look, I've got two guys that work for me that are finish shapers, and they I – prefer, I prefer to ride the boards that they've shaped for me. In other words, they shape my boards better than I shape them. Yeah, yeah. interesting. The one other detail that I think the market is resistant to is that sometimes – this might have been true 10 and 20 years ago, but boards aren't clearly labeled as to where the origin where of manufacturing yeah. is. So they could go into a retailer and there would be – something made in, you know, domestically and something imported and they don't know what the difference is. And so I think that they feel duped, you know, like when you were giving that example of Aloha and it was kind of a taboo thing, it's the taboo is more that the consumer feels like they're having a fast one pulled on them. Well, I suppose if you do have a local manufacturing facility that does custom boards, possibly people would feel that all boards were made in that location. And I think there was a lot of intentional smoke and mirrors from some of the manufacturers. Yeah. And that's goes way back by the way, like that goes back to when manufacturing started getting scaled up and the one shapers yeah. laminate is used on every board. But even you've got those nine other ghost, ghost shapers. shapers. Yes. Right. So when I was yeah. a kid, it's just like, Oh, this guy makes all these boards and it's like, yeah. no, no, no. Not only does he not, but they're not even all manufactured domestically. And that's a problem. So I think that we grew up with that in our DNA to be wary. And so now you as an Asian manufacturer are kind of always going to be fighting that for a period of time. And, and until things are just all labeled transparently, I think all the consumer wants is transparency. And well, look, fine. When I know we have to label our boards uh, as made in Thailand. Legally. Um, not the actual boards, but the packaging. Because we, we box every board up, and on every box it says made in Thailand, but it's not actually on the boards. But I have seen it on some boards. So yeah. I, I don't know what the actual um, ruling is, whether it has to be on the actual product or on the packaging of the product. I'm sure it's different for the US than it is for yeah. Europe, than it is for Australia anyways. Yeah, yeah but look, at, at this point, look, you know, more uh, – Look, it'd be my guess that um, more than 90% of the world surfboards are built in Asia now. Is Do you really think so? Yeah. Wow. Look, I saw an article recently. I'm not sure if you're familiar, if you're familiar with it. Nick Carroll wrote an article uh, about four or five months ago, and it was about the amount of imported surfboards that were coming into America and the number was over a million surfboards are being imported into America. And I think about 560,000 of those were from China alone. Wow. Uh, I think it was a few hundred thousand from Thailand. Um, and then you had like Vietnam and then you had like Taiwan and there was a few other places. And then, you know, obviously there's still a few imported from Australia and South America and Mexico and places like that. Yeah. But um, essentially, yeah, look, America is importing over a million surfboards a year. Now, once upon a time, 
you guys were self-sufficient. You produced all your own boards. So, you know, Asian manufacturing, without a doubt, I, I, look, I've seen it in my own time. It, it wiped out the surfboard industry in Australia and it probably wiped out the surfboard industry here in America. Um, so I forgot your question. Well, I wonder if that accounts, if those numbers account for wave storm. Wave storms, that's included. It has to. Yeah, yeah. I think there's 120,000 wave storms in there. Yeah. I would guess way more than that. 120,000? Right. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, back to Sonova. So you guys are manufacturing. It should be stated we've really only been talking about short or surfboards, but you guys manufacture SUPs. What's your full what's your line of product? Uh, okay, so we do um, stand-up paddle race boards. We do stand-up paddle fun boards. We do stand-up paddle like high-performance surf. Uh, we do windsurfers. We do kite boards. We do wake surfboards for like just surfing behind the wake of a boat with no rope. Um, and we do longboards, shortboards, hybrids. Toe, toe surfboards. Toe boards as well, yep. Yeah. yeah. We don't uh, – <clears throat> The toe boards, look, realistically, we don't do a lot of those as far as selling them. Yeah, it's a small um, market. But basically we make them because we've got one of the best guys in the world that rides them. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of probably a little bit more of a branding thing. And, and the work that we're doing with him is so unique. Uh, he actually asked us to sign an agreement to say I wouldn't build boards for anybody else. Wow. Because his boards are literally under lock and key. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's we, a pretty bold move on his part. Yeah, well, look, honestly, <laughs> we've worked out some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. yeah. What do you see as an innovator, um, kind of an innovator mindset, what do you see as um, exciting and what's the next, what are you working on in an R&D standpoint? Wow. Is there anything? What's Look, I tell you, I, I've been wrong a number of times, right? Um, when I first saw SUP, I thought, that's going nowhere. And, and the thing just exploded globally. Um, now I'm seeing foil. Foil's just the next big thing. Um, Are you invested in it? Oh, yeah. Look, we, we're doing lots of foil boards. Are you uh, making the foil itself or just the boards? Uh, we're making just the boards. We're actually working with a few other companies on the foil. The foil itself is where all the tech is. Yeah. And it, it, it's so much tech and it's so much knowledge. Uh, and, you know, the the difficulty of production and so on, that we've just teamed up with a couple of other guys that know what they're doing. They've, they've kind of been in it for 10 to 12 years. We're sort of just tagging along with them. Um, look, if it goes further, we may we may do something with production. I've got some ideas as well with foil that I want to explore. And so the beauty is one of the guys that we're working with, it's it's really easy to sort of say, hey, can you build us this? Can you build us that? It's, it's sort of components. So you know, I'm able to sort of take a tail wing off and I can create a tail wing in the factory and bolt it on and then try a new concept. So, um, yeah, so foil foil is – there's been a lot of R&D around foil for the last few de- few years and it's really blowing up. In fact, stand-up paddle – performance stand-up paddle actually dropped in Australia. The numbers dropped right away uh, and a lot of manufacturers or a lot of brands really felt it. But for us, we got into foiling a few years ago and foiling – the foil boards basically replaced the numbers of the SUPs that disappeared. So we, we actually sort of kept our market share, but just in different products. Interesting. Yeah. What do you, in terms of innovation, do you see any um, 
anything exciting on the construction? Uh, look, there's a few new things. Um, <coughs> Firewire were pretty quick with this one. I was a bit disappointed. I found it before you guys, but... <laughs> but they scaled it faster and yeah, brought it to absolutely. market. Now, nah, look, their new helium construction is kick-ass, eh? Um, it's, there's a new foam on the market. It's a high-density sandwich foam, and it's made from recycled Coke bottles. It's a PET foam. And we've got some. We've actually sort of, you know, I got some like three years ago, probably in fact longer. I got some about four years ago. I said, right, I'm going to build these boards and I'm going to blow, blow it up and say, hey, look, I've come up with the next greatest thing. But Martin, my business partner, was like, no, nah, look, we don't need a distraction. We've got our shit to do. So I kind of shelved it. And then about oh, 18 months later, like, Someone says, oh, you heard this new thing Firewire are doing? It's called Helium. And I thought to myself, I bet you any money those suppliers that knocked on our door knocked on their door too um, to show this new product off. So it's pretty cool. It's a white, high-density foam, sandwich foam made from plastic, recycled plastic. So I, I think it's – and you can build boards from it. I, I – Look, I can't say at this point how it's going to perform. I've kind of, you know, I've looked at the material itself and I'm really excited with it because it has a lot of properties very similar to the uh, styrene acrylonite that I used to use years ago. So, and so look, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Firewire Helium product is pretty good based on the materials that they're using and how it's put together. Plus, it's environmentally friendly. So have, have you ridden one? I haven't ridden one, no. But uh, I'll, you know, obviously I'll build myself one. Um, yeah, we're, we're playing with another construction at the moment. We've come up with a little bit of tech as far as uh, the way we build boards. It's a sort of it's a process thing. So you know, we're always playing with stuff there. We're trying to improve systems in the factory, make things flow. Um, I've got a list. I, I literally were. We're starting to sort of uh, create various projects in our business. You know, the, the base is really set up well. I mean, you know, product flows out the door, the bills are paid. Um, you know, my main role is basically like R&D, which is kind of what it always was, and and sort of getting out on the road and doing stuff like this, yeah. you know, saying hi to shops and maybe opening an account here or there and, you know, sort of popping my head into public every now and then. But uh, we're putting together a, a whole separate – because it's kind of frustrating. I've been complaining about this for a while. I want to do some R&D and I go out the back into the factory and I've got to ask a worker to move aside while I step into a space and pick up a sander or I work on something or I'm trying to get an R&D project done and the production manager says to me, no, 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 you can't do it, Bert. i I got, I got to get this container out by Friday. Yeah. Um, so I've said to the guys, look, I want my own space, all right? I want a space where I can go out, walk into, not have to disrupt anybody and and get creative out there. And so uh, my biz partners asked me, well, put a list together of different, um, different R&D projects you think you might like to explore, you know, maybe a few different production processes or techniques uh, or even different materials, you know, because uh, I think they wanted me to justify why I wanted my, my whole own space there, right? 
and I identified 150 different variations and potential surfboards I could build, built in different ways with different materials. And I know I won't even get through it in my lifetime. Of course. So it's wild. Yeah. Um, two questions before we finish. Number one, how often do you ride other shapers' surfboards? Hardly at all. And it's not by choice. I would actually love to. My problem is that, you know, I'm six foot four and I'm 275 pound and you don't come across that many shapes that are actually you can just jump on and surf. Right. Yeah. You have to order it custom basically. Yeah. yeah, that's it. It's not like I can swap with a guy in a water. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you ride? Me? Uh, look, I, I sort of – look. I was always just into performance longboarding and I was into performance shortboarding. So when I was back in Oz, I used to surf competitively uh, in both divisions and, and do pretty well. Um, then, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, a little bit longer, there was this real trend towards like shorter and wider and thicker. And I went down that road and just struggled. I just didn't like it. Um, so now I'm just sort of back on my typical performance board that I was on like 15, 20 years ago. Um, I've just scaled it up for my current um, overweightness. So it's just a, a scaled up version of my all-time favourite board. I'm still riding my performance long boards. And then these days I've kind of actually picked up a log. And um, it's, it's mainly because of where competitive longboarding has gone. Um, you know, performance longboarding – is seen as not credible. It's like sacrilegious to the longboarding purists um, and they think boards should be heavy and slow and with a single fin and no leg rope. So I'm not fighting it. Fuck, I've just joined the program. And uh, and so, yeah, I'm sort of now exploring log design prim- primarily because I have uh, sponsored riders that are competing on the Longboard World Tour and so even just I was in New York last week and I was really there to see who are the surfers and what are they riding and who's getting the points. And it was interesting because I identified – I had a look at about 70 different boards and and now nose riding is a key aspect of the criteria. And so over about three days I had a look at the, the boards of all the competitors lying around the contest site and I identified – seven boards which I thought had the magic nose rider characteristics where and where those guys were able to get the points and, and fulfil the judging criteria. And when it got to the quarterfinals, there was eight surfers left. Five of those guys were on my original list of seven. Out of my original list of seven, I picked two guys, Carney Ellis Stewart and Jefferson Silver. I said, those boards are the magic nose rider boards, and I'm picking them for the final. And I actually got it in writing like three days before it happened. They, they made the final, those two guys. And so I don't want to say it's the surfboard, but the surfboard is a strong element of what the surfer needs to get the points. Absolutely. Um, in longboarding. So so me personally, uh, I'm playing around a lot more now with um, – mainly because I never did. I just ignored it. Like, I mean, I hated logging. I hated that whole style of longboarding. I was a performance longboarder and that was that. 
and I kind of just ignored it. So I feel like now I'm trying to play catch up. Yeah. You know, there's guys out there that really know this stuff. Um, but I feel like, you know, water flow and, you know, the way water flows over a surface and physics in general, I'm pretty good with it. So sure. I feel like I've got it. But, yeah, so that's pretty much well me. Three boards at the moment, performance short board, performance long board and a log, and I just sort of gravitate between the three depending on conditions. Very good. Um, I assume that there's probably a lot of listeners who found this conversation really, really interesting, but they're still going to grab their PU board off the rack tomorrow and go surf that. So give me a one-minute elevator pitch for why – somebody who's accustomed and used to, and maybe they've even experimented with EPS and epoxy, but it's just here and there. They're traditionally riding PU boards. What's the pitch for why they should ride Sonova construction boards? Well, yeah, look, I'm going to say with Sonova, it's, 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 not, it's not about EPS epoxy, right? We have a unique construction process. They have so much zing and spring and projection out of turns, so they're fast, they're light, they're strong. They have a cushioned ride with a soft bottom. They have a lot of durability. They'll outlast a PU. Like, seriously, a standard four-ounce PU off the shelf, Sunover's going to outlast it 10 or 20 times. So it's going to be lighter. It's going to be stronger. It's going to last longer. It's going to perform better. And even though it's more expensive, it's way cheaper in the long run. Excellent. Thank you, Bert Berger. No worries. All right. Thank you, David. Special thanks to Ron Shine at Board Porn and Tyler Brewer at Swell Season Podcast, Swell Season Radio, for referring me to Burt Berger. Before coming to California, Burt was actually in New York and he recorded an episode of Swell Season with Tyler, who then suggested that we make this happen. So Tyler goes a bit deeper into Burt's origin story and youth. And if you'd like to hear that, you can find Tyler's podcast, Swell Season, in all the usual podcast places. All of the visuals for everything that Bert and I discussed are available on surfsplendorpodcast.com. You can also leave a comment in the comments section there. I'm sure there'll be a lot of opinions about today's show, and I'm really curious to see how this conversation evolves. So please do that. And then lastly, rating and reviewing the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen helps strangers to find it it also helps with our ranking on their charts which again just basically helps other people to find the show so please do that wherever applicable and i'll actually be back tomorrow over on spit with an episode uh of spit with scott bass and then friday with chas smith over on the grit so go get those podcasts on their own podcast feeds and i'll be back here on wednesday of next week for another episode of surf splendor This is, of course, David Scales saying thank you and reminding you to get back into the water, share some waves, and shred off.